0: Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm very excited to have Tim O'Reilly as our guest today on the show. Tim, thank you very much for, for joining us from Oakland. Great to have you.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: If you don't know Tim O'Reilly, well, I, I probably find that a little bit hard to believe, especially if you are an avid watcher of Winner Take All. Uh, but Tim, is you've had your hands in so many different things over the years. Uh, O'Reilly Media is is your media business, where you're doing everything from, you know, conferences and media, and um, you know, authoring your own books to I don't know, probably some other stuff that I'm missing.
1: Our biggest business really is our online learning platform. Uh, we do we now, even though we're no longer doing physical events in the age of COVID, we do online events there. Uh, we have uh, tens of thousands of of uh, technology books. We have live online training, uh, tens of thousands of hours of of technical video. It's really kind of a a, a learning resource uh, for the age of knowledge on demand.
0: That's amazing, and you know a, a wonderful founder story. Having having built this business over many years, really exciting to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. So, you know, some of what brought us together today is is. There's a lot happening, a lot of buzz with uh tech regulation and um about maybe last summer not not a full year almost a year ago you wrote an article in uh in quartz publication about antitrust regulators are are using the wrong tools to break up big tech how would you you know how would you kind of set the frame or how would you describe that article in terms of uh what regulators have been doing wrong as as they are assessing these large tech platforms?
1: Well, the fundamental framing of technology uh, of antitrust is uh, to ask the question, is there competition uh, between parties who are offering similar goods and services? Uh, And that's based on the idea that if there is competition, uh, the invisible hand of the market will uh, effectively uh, protect the consumer uh so if if uh you know there are multiple airlines for example uh they'll they'll have to compete on price and quality and uh as a result uh they'll all uh have to raise their standards or the ones who don't do well uh will be driven out of uh, business now w- the problem with that in tech is that there are a lot of winner takes all type businesses uh where Literally, once you get to a certain scale, it becomes very hard for there to be competition. And then antitrust regulators tend to ask themselves, uh, well, uh, where's the consumer harm? Are prices going up, for example? And the problem, of course, is that many of these uh, uh, internet services offer their goods for free. So you go, how can there possibly uh, be consumer harm when uh, the goods are there for free? And the argument that I make is uh, that both of these views uh, aren't rooted in the reality of the way uh, the web works, or the internet in general. And that is many of the platforms, uh, if you like, of the internet are are what economists call two-sided markets. That is, uh, often you may give something away for free in order to attract uh, some other market. Or you may be matching two, two sides of the market. For example, Uber has to build a, 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 a critical mass of drivers and a critical mass of riders. Uh, Google needs a critical mass of, of uh, searchers and a critical mass of advertisers. Uh, Facebook, same thing. They need a critical mass of people who are posting on Facebook and they need a critical mass of advertisers. Both need to uh, exist for the company to thrive. Uh, Typically, uh, in the Silicon Valley of today, the thesis has been, well, if you can attract enough users with free goods, you'll eventually be able to attract the other side of the market, and then they will pay you. And that's worked out pretty well for a lot of companies. The problem is that one side of the market tends to end up being uh, damaged in order to help the other, so let's take Amazon for a moment. Amazon uh, basically squeezes, and most retailers do this quite honestly. It's not just Amazon, but uh, their goal is to get prices as low as possible for consumers, so that uh, consumers you know will, will flock to the platform. You know, Jeff uh, likes to say that it's a virtuous circle. Uh, it, it, you know, he ca- he calls it. Um, uh, you know, there's just this sort of dynamo of of Amazon, uh, you know, where you give lower prices that gets more users, uh, which allows you to invest more in building better services. And uh, that flywheel, uh, as he calls it, uh, you know, it makes the business better and better. And, and, and there's a lot to that argument. But the problem is that Amazon depends on millions of suppliers, and those suppliers at some point, have to make money as well. And when they don't, and when you, for example, you start saying, "Well, we're just going to try to get prices as low as possible," you end up with more and more low-price suppliers who are driving out uh, better suppliers, perhaps, and the actual quality goes down, and the consumer harm comes up over time. Even more than that, uh, Amazon, uh, uh, you know, has been at least has been claimed, and and not. Necessarily studied enough to 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 bring an antitrust suit yet, Amazon has basically cherry picked the categories in which they will compete. So they say, "Oh, people are making money on this category. Uh, let us offer our own product." And 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 again, I I think that's very short sighted thinking because if this is a two sided market, you need both sides to prosper. Now uh, I. I started with uh, with Amazon, but Google is is telling us a clearer story right now than Amazon, because it, if, if you look at the history of Google, they really arose as a middleman between all these people who were creating free, often you know, free content on the web, uh, which was being monetized by advertising, and those suppliers made Google necessary. Uh, uh, Google didn't create the web. Uh, They simply became a a switchboard, so to speak. And what's happened over the last 20 years is that Google has offered, uh, uh, really with the idea that this is good for their users, more and more of the content uh, that people are searching for. So back when Google went public in uh, 2004, Uh, Larry Page, uh, the co-founder and CEO, described how Google was different from Yahoo and other web portals in that their goal was to send people on their, you know, when people came to search, that we'll just send them on their way way somewhere else. We don't want to hold on to them. But today, uh, you know, what is it, 18 years later, uh, more than half of all Google searches are satisfied by Google itself. Uh, You know, you search for many, many types of things and you don't go anywhere on the web. You simply get your answer from Google. Now, Google says, oh, this is better for our users. I mean, who wouldn't want to just have the answer? Why would you have to go through the second step? And uh, the reason why I think this is long term, you know, unsustainable for Google is it means that they become the primary information provider. And all of that creativity of the market that was supplying content to the web says, so it's not worth it anymore. You know, we're just, we, we can't make money because Google takes all the best uh, opportunities. And sometimes it really is very, very direct, Google competing very directly with suppliers. Uh, you know, for example, there are, you know, internet native sites. Uh, the one I like to point to is TripAdvisor. You know, great innovation in travel publishing where they aggregated user reviews of places all over the world they spent years building up this business. And it was, in fact, the top result for many Google searches. You say, I want to find a hotel in uh, Cabo Pulmo, you know, or I want to, you know, place you want to go visit. And you get reviews, you get pictures, you get, co- you know, guest commentary. And then uh, Google says, well, well, we actually should offer that service. And then, so there's now Google Travel. And here's where it really becomes, uh, uh, I think, an antitrust question. Uh, Google actually favors their own content. Uh, they, they, you know, they literally, when you do that travel search at the top, and you'll see this increasingly if you compare back historically. And I wrote this about uh, in, about this in the article. Um, you know, uh, t- even ten years ago, a Google search uh, was organic search results. That is. The listings of other websites with a a few ads along the uh, along the top and the others down the side in another column. Uh, They were clearly differentiated from the organic results. Today, when you do a search on Google for a commercially valuable property, for a commercially valuable search, you will typically find two things. Uh, Often, several pages of scrolling before you will see a single organic result. You will see content that's created by Google, and you will see paid ads. So Google has basically driven out organic search and replaced it uh, with their own content and with uh, content that people uh, pay for them. And the net result is that while the web Ah, uh, the economics of the web have continued to grow. The economics for Google have grown far, far faster. And I, in my article, I show this graph where the fortunes of the web as a whole—the web people actually produce the content on the web—and the amount of of, of money that's uh, so sort of taken from the ad ecosystem by Google itself uh, are are increasingly diverging. And this is not sustainable.
0: We speak very similarly on this topic. Let me let me give you some supporting material that j- just helps help strengthen the argument that you're making around, say, Amazon, right? In in Jeff Bezos's uh, shareholder letter from from April of 2019, he disclosed that 58% of the products sold on Amazon um, are from third-party sellers. They're doing maybe $270 billion in total sales. They're probably somewhere around $170 billion in third-party three-piece sales on Amazon, right? There are... A myriad of examples of third-party sellers that have come out and said that um, you know, Amazon is uh, competing unfairly with me, vertically integrating, as you were referencing. Um, t- if I'm a seller, not the manufacturer, their product managers are requesting my purchase orders and then contacting the manufacturer directly and cutting me out of the sale uh, and one-peeing it. But you know, if you take a step back and you say, okay, if Amazon is doing about 170 billion dollars in GMV from third-party sellers, eBay, being the number two marketplace, is doing maybe 40 billion dollars in US GMV, all from third-party sellers. Um, Etsy would probably be somewhere after that. They're doing maybe four or five billion in GMV. You know, whatever it is, you add up the numbers the the marketplaces get much smaller pretty quickly maybe you got roughly 220 or 225 billion dollars in total sales if i'm a third party seller selling online marketplace you know through marketplaces maybe there's a pool of 225 ish billion dollars that amazon has at least 170 175 billion dollars of that pool similarly for google with your examples Exactly. As you said, you've had the CEO of TripAdvisor, Yelp, Expedia all come out and say that you know Google's unfairly cramming us down. They're vertically integrating. They're promoting their own search results. Actually, another example I love is uh, Lyrics.com. I don't yeah. know if you saw this, where where Google is not only cramming down these competitive... You know, would have now become competitive because Google's vertically integrated and and tried to launch their own offerings for this. They are ripping the content off of these other sites. Lyrics actually put dummy uh uh like Easter eggs into into their um, information that Google was scraping. So you would go and look for this song's lyrics on Google. And it had the Lyrics.com Easter egg, which basically said, we caught you red-handed, Google. <laughs> You're stealing our yeah. information.
1: Just to be clear, uh, I, I think that story is a little bit more complicated. Uh, and I'm, I'm not deep into it. But I believe in, in that particular case that Google licensed the content for their offering from some other third-party seller uh, who was was the one who basically had basically... StolenLyrics.com's uh, um, lyrics. And so, uh, yeah, and, and the, re- the reason why that's an important distinction is that it, it does indicate that when, you know, you have a, uh, a philosophy that says, well, we actually, uh, if we can get it cheaper, we should, you're actually inviting fraud in a certain way. And there is another way to do it. You know, I, you know, just kind of going back to this idea that Google believes that it would really be better for their users to give um, the direct answer. You know, Google has this amazing capability to crawl the web. They have this amazing ability to do a web auction for every commercial search. Why could they not put that same effort to work in saying, right now, we believe that lyrics.com is the best number one source for this answer, and we're going to pay them for it. And then next week uh, they discover that, no, actually, just like you know, organic search results change, they go to actually the best first result is from Rap Genius. You know, and they go, okay, so we're going to show you that one. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't have an answer box that was dynamically driven off the first search result. Uh, Yes, it would be harder. Yes, it would be a little bit more expensive. But the fact is, they already have the capability, and they're continually adjusting ranks. And so if they were to say, oh, well, what we really have to do is not make one low-cost deal. What we have to do is funnel some of the revenue through to the people who are producing the content. Let's enable and let's turbocharge the competition of the web rather than uh, simply we're going to anoint one low-cost provider. Uh, who will then supply us, and we will basically have a better deal. And uh, anyway, the, the the thing that I worry the most about in in all of these cases is that eventually, uh, effectively, the it, it's, it, it's it's a little bit like Gresham's law in in uh, in finance. <laughs> um, Gresham's law says bad money drives out good, and that is if there are two currencies that are convertible. Uh, you know, and both both in circulation, you know, in a country, mm-hmm. say, you know, they'll say they take, uh, you know, you know, the local currency, and they take U.S. dollars. People will hoard the dollars, uh, and and give out the uh, the local currency. Uh, and, and so, th- th- in in a similar way, you know, effectively, the bad websites and the bad sources of content, because they're they're cheaper are the ones that the, uh, the, 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 uh, you know, the algorithmic provider ends up featuring. So I think it's really bad for users in the long run. And I, but mostly, I think it's bad because innovation just goes somewhere else. And a lot of my right. thinking on this was shaped by you know, my, earlier in my career when Microsoft was the big, uh, the big dog of the computer industry. I mean, they're actually, they've, they've rediscovered uh, how to be a big dog again, but you know, they controlled the personal computer industry very deeply. They were a, a monopoly. And uh, they basically drove entrepreneurs, they drove software developers out of the market because they literally said, oh, that's a good category. We have to own it. And so developers went somewhere else. They went over to the Internet. And I think it, it, that lesson should not be lost on Google, that when they take too much of the revenue, the people who make content will find somewhere else to go uh, to monetize it, because Google doesn't let them do that anymore on the web. And so the web will become more and more stale, the web will become less and less interesting, and Google will become less and less relevant. And then there'll be a moment when, just as Microsoft had to wake up and realize they weren't king of the hill anymore, where Google goes, oh, my God, what happened? And they could be seeing that now and saying, wait, how do we keep our marketplace, our ecosystem vibrant? And, of course, this is a metaphor for our entire society. You know, we built this fragile system uh, in which a few companies are, are being optimized for And the system as a whole uh, is weak.
0: And, you know, maybe eventually over time, that dilution actually leads to people departing for another service or another competitive, you know, alternative. However, you make a really great point here that there is a downside for the consumer, but -hmm. there is a much greater downside for those suppliers, for those producers. That's right. Whether you are a seller on Amazon, a developer on Microsoft, a website or a content source on Google search. And although the consumer can kind of wait it out and is minimally uh, damaged, we keep on seeing the FTC and the DOJ try to kind of make like a three sided argument here where it's, oh, well, they're taking supplier data and then ultimately that's hurting the consumer And, and they're trying to map these complaints back to the consumer. Is there a way to just keep this antitrust conversation focused on the supply when it comes to an Amazon, a Google search? Is that some of what you're getting at in, in your thinking here?
1: Yeah, you know, I am not a legal scholar and I am not a... Um, uh, I'm not really equipped to say how to implement the policy. I, in fact, a lot of what I have tried to do is really be a voice for the companies, just like I was, say, with my activism in the 90s and early uh, 2000s for open source software. I was saying to you know, companies like Microsoft, hey, adopt it. It will be good for you. you know, and here I'm saying to companies like Google and Amazon, adopt this ecosystem thinking. It will be good for you. And so I, I'm, I'm less focused on antitrust and remedies and so on and more on, hey, this is the way the world works uh learn uh how to manage your marketplace sustainably because if you don't uh it, it won't end well and and so that's been the main uh focus it's really an activist focus rather than a a, a legal focus uh, th- that being said um that being said i do think that there are uh definitely people who are thinking about um uh, uh, legal, you know, h- how this plays into legal arguments. And I'm working uh, with uh, Mariana Mazzucato, the economist, on just a general theory of tech. And it's really it's less focused on antitrust than on the economic theory of what uh, uh, they call rents, which is basically unearned income. And I make the case that there's a new, you know, rent, rents, basically, the, the term goes really back, back to the Middle Ages when, you know, you owned the land, uh, you, you didn't produce anything. Uh, but you got to collect uh, the rent. So the, uh, you know, the peasant farmers uh, you know, growing things uh, early in, in, uh, in, in economics, they basically said, look, no, actually the land and the people who work it are the source of value and, and the landowners are, are basically extracting unearned income. You fast forward, and Mariana has a great book on this, uh, The Value of Everything, where she talks about the moving you know, story in our economy about who we think creates value. And uh it's a really she says, look, we have to engage in a real discussion about who we believe creates value, uh, because it shapes our value our our, our idea of fairness. And when somebody collects unearned income, they have no incentive uh to, to continue to innovate. Uh, they, they have an incentive instead to keep collecting. And we have in honor earned income all through our society. You think about, you know, in real estate, for example, if you own a house, it appreciates. You don't, you don't have to fix it up. In fact, you're, you may be, your house may be rotting away around you and it can be going up in value. You don't have to be improving it. If, if uh, um, you know, stock prices are going up, 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 uh, you can basically be making boneheaded decisions and still make a lot of money. You can be doing, uh, you know. You think about uh, uh, both Travis Kalanick and uh, Adam Newman at WeWork, uh, who who walked off with billions, despite the fact that their companies are still not making any money. That's because basically stock market appreciation in the absence, stock market appreciation is this untethered to actual profits, is a kind of rent. You know, the the original theory of of uh, you know why you pay. Uh, more for a stock than the present earnings is because you're going to keep earning over some period of time. But we suddenly got this theory, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that it would you could bet on a company, even if it had no earnings. And, and at that point, it's just an opportunity for, for people to, to, to take money out of the system and never deliver the value that's supposed to be collected later. And, and I, I think that this kind of goes into a whole other... Um, area in my thinking, I I think we have a real problem in the way we talk about the value that companies create. And I I, I actually was right before COVID hit, I was just about finished uh, writing a piece entitled Why Jeff Bezos is the Richest Man in the World. And I decided again, that nobody really cared about that topic anymore, uh, because of COVID. (laughs) So I never published it, Uh, maybe getting time to get back to it. But the the thesis, it's still very relevant when people say, "Oh my gosh." Jeff is so rich, uh, and he doesn't pay his workers enough. They don't realize that the reason why Jeff is so rich doesn't actually have very much with what's produced by Amazon. It has to do with the fact that Amazon has a, a vast number of the investor class who are just placing bets on it, and Jeff is cashing in the bets. You know, uh, the the you know when you look at uh, you know I, I, in in this uh, earlier piece I wrote actually I wrote about it in my book and you know, I said, look, you know, I have a private company. I compete with Amazon actually I, less so today, you know, in the sense that, uh, they're no longer much, uh, the books are not uh, you know, central to their business, but you know, we would sell books directly on O'Reilly.com and they would say selling our books on Amazon. And, um, you know, but I get a dollar of profit. I get a dollar at that point. When Jeff got a dollar of profit, He got two hundred and fifty dollars of stock price gain because people were betting so heavily on him. Even today, Amazon gets ninety dollars for every dollar of profit. And so, you know, if Jeff and I actually didn't exercise, uh, you know, again, this kind of goes back to a a wonderful quote from Ben Benjamin Graham, who was uh, the mentor for Warren Buffett, author of a book uh, called The Intelligent Investor. And uh, he said, in the in the short term, the market uh, is a voting machine. In uh, the long term, it's a uh, a um, weighing machine. And I actually prefer to use the, the term betting machine than than voting machine because it's really become more like betting than voting. But if you think about it this way, uh, I you know I, let's just say that a company uh, has a ten percent profit margin. Actually, let's, let, we're talking so, uh, a software company, right? Let's let, let, So let's talk about, you know, a company with a 30% profit margin because software companies make a lot of money. And, you, you know, the, the, the Benjamin Graham weighing machine approach would be to say, well, how long do you think they're going to make that kind of money? How, how fast are they going to grow? Uh, what's it going to look like over the next 10 years? Because if I bought that company, if I owned a share of that company, I'd get that money, right? I'd get its earnings. So uh, if it's going to make 30% and it's growing at 20% a year, you know, you do the math and you kind of come up with a price. And that's why, you know, on on a, um, you know, typical, uh, you know, there's more sophisticated measures today, but, you know, they still report on the price to earnings ratio. That is, this stock is is trading at 20 times earnings or 30 times earnings. Um, And, uh, you know, but when you start, Thinking about what's a reasonable amount, you know, uh, stock market valuations are crazy right now. You know, the the the, uh, the average uh, price earnings multiple of the Fortune 500 in, in the U.S. is about 26, or at least uh, again, I haven't checked recently, but that's where it was when I was writing this piece. Uh, that means that you're saying, oh yeah, we actually think that uh, it's worth paying. You know, like take take a share of a company like. Uh, you know, I don't know, Ford Motor, you know, that they're gonna keep making money at the same rate they are today, uh, that we should give them, for for, you know, enough, we give them 26 years of their profits today, right? To walk off with. We think Amazon is gonna be so successful for so long that we're gonna give them 90 years worth of their profits in stock price today. You know, so they're the weighing machine, you know, like. It's very rare that a tech company continues to be that valuable. So what people are really doing is they're just placing bets. They're placing short-term bets. They're kind of going, right now, I'm betting that uh, other people are going to think that, that uh, Amazon's worth this much, and they're just going to go up. And, and, and it's this game, uh, with this too much capital chasing returns, and it's really unmoored from the fundamentals of the business which means that companies no longer get the feedback that says you need to do things for the long term. They get the feedback that says, do things for the short term, make the, you know, the betters happy and, um, and, 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 then cash out. Anyway, the point of all this, the point of all this weighing machine and betting machine thing is that, you know, you, know, you talk about Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world and before his divorce, I think it was a hundred and, $59 billion. Uh, I don't know what it is right now, but I did the math back then. I said, if he had actually kept his share of Amazon's, of Amazon's profits for the last you know, 20, 20 some years, uh, 20, it would be almost 25 at this point uh, since Amazon was founded, uh, he'd be worth about $4 billion, right? Mm-hmm. So on the other hand, uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, Google uh, doesn't fail the weighing machine, you know, the betting machine versus the weighing machine test. If Larry and Sergey actually just kept all their Google stock and they kept their share of Google's accumulated profits, they'd actually be richer than they are today.
0: It's those short-term quarterly calls, which are promoting this behavior of what exactly you're talking about, which is you're diluting the value, you're squeezing the supply, you're vertically integrating to extract that value out of the suppliers in the short-term that's right, and long term, that should be detrimental to the platform and and the multiples. I just looked it up. Amazon is a hundred eighteen PE multiple, and given the pandemic and everything that's going on, we've we've actually seen these stocks at an all time high. They've actually even eclipsed where they were back in February. Many of them. So that's right. You know, when you look at this long term, you look at an Amazon, you look at a Google, where They all have like one very dominant, one or two very dominant monopolies Google with Google search. They've got Android. It doesn't really monetize nearly as well as Google search. It's kind of like a nice moat around Google search. Amazon has the marketplace, huge monopoly. When you look at the amount of kind of flesh they're extracting, this value exchange, cramming down suppliers in the immediate term, making these shorter term investors happy as a result. Long-term, do you think it's sustainable? Are you betting on these companies long-term to live up to the multiples they're trading at today?
1: Let me separate two things. First off, it's very easy to gang up on companies. I I have some very specific criticisms. Uh, That is, competing with with suppliers is one criticism. Uh, The other is not really a criticism. It's saying, you know, I'm critical of the market for overvaluing these companies. Based on short term betting. Uh, It's not Jeff Bezos' fault that people want to throw money at him. Uh, He is, and and I don't think he's doing bad things in order to make them uh, throw money at him. I do think that uh, 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 Amazon in general has done a lot. uh, I mean, again, they are. They are operating within the rules of an economy that I don't agree with in the sense that I think that there's a kind of um, deep hostility to workers in modern capitalism. You know, deep, uh, you, know, you know, this whole idea that all of the value that is possible to extract should be extracted for the purpose of corporate profits and shareholder value is a fundamentally antisocial idea. In My book, I actually describe our, our financial markets as the first rogue AI hostile to humanity. You know, we literally tell our companies, you know, you know, treat people as a cost to be eliminated, and that's not. I don't think that's sustainable in the long term. But within that system, I don't see Amazon as a particularly bad actor. I don't see Google as a particularly bad actor. Uh, you know, if you compare them, for example, to you know, pharma companies that, you know. Peddled a product that they knew was harmful. That peddled the product that they actually uh, lobbied legislators uh, to uh, minimize the harms and risks of. You look at, you know, hundred years of of climate denial by, uh, you know, by oil companies. You look at, uh, you know, uh, similar amount of uh, of uh, it's not quite a hundred years, but seventy years of denial by uh, tobacco companies. You know, tech comes off pretty well in that. In that measure, but our system is is rotten. It's optimizing for the wrong thing,
0: right? And and I think the and the closing note here is that at least some of those other industries, there's competition amongst the players. The players might be taking advantage, but at least there's competition amongst them. You know, when an Amazon, a Google, they really are the be all end all. And when you do take advantage of the supply,
1: I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, I, I think they, they have enough market power to take advantage of the supply. Uh, but I think our best is coming full circle at the beginning of our competi- of our of our conversation. I think that that idea that the right measure is whether or not there is competition, is beside the point. The question is, are they in a position to extract rents, uh, that is unearned income, uh, and, and by favoring their own products? And, and, and if that's the case they have to actually separate this and let me kind of come back to my own company because I also operate at a much smaller scale admittedly a, a two sided market uh, the O'Reilly platform is a learning marketplace where we have uh, you know hundreds of different content uh, providers who uh, give us content uh, and we are also a content provider for our own platform and we're mindful of the fact uh, because we are not in uh, a monopoly. You know, we don't have monopoly power. That we have to take care of our suppliers, because if they didn't, they would go to our competitors. And this is where competition does matter: is uh, uh, is there a risk that your suppliers will bolt your platform?
0: And does Amazon or Google do they have that same
1: risk? I, I don't think they have that risk, and so they have power over their supply. In in a way that allows them to extract value that they should not be able to extract, and that has yeah, and yes, you could argue that well, there's a a a, you know the presence or or or, uh, absence of competition is one way to think about it. But it's very hard to make the case that, oh, well, you know, in this market, uh, it's competitive. In that market, it isn't. It's a heck of a lot easier to see, for example, and this is the the point I'm trying to make in my idea about algorithmic rents, that uh, when, uh, you know, Amazon is able to, or Google, uh, both of them, you know, here's one of the things I guess that's maybe a, a key point. You know, Amazon went out there with the original slogan, Earth's biggest bookstore, and now it's, you know, Brad uh, Stone called it the everything store, right? But it isn't really the everything store. It is the store uh, in which Amazon decides what to feature for you. Uh, It doesn't have, you know, again, I think there's estimates that Amazon carries something like uh, 3 billion SKUs worldwide. Uh, but it doesn't really carry 3 billion SKUs. You don't see 3 billion SKUs. You see, uh, for a given search, you see the, the half dozen or the dozen that Amazon decides to show you. So they have this deep, deep, deep control uh, over what you get to see. And I think that you've never done the same thing with Google, right? You You search a trillion web pages, but Google shows you know, a few, and particularly on a phone, it's now down to very, very few. And so they have this deep, deep control over what you get to choose from. And so the fundamental idea of our competitive markets is that there's a lot of choice. And my point is that in these marketplaces, there is the appearance of choice, but no real choice. Because Amazon used to actually use the collective intelligence of all their users to show what their users thought was the best product in response to a given search. Google used to use the collective intelligence of all their users to show what was the best web page in response to a search. But what do they do today? They show you the content that somebody paid them to show, i.e. they're able to extract money to show you a top result. That's what, the, what where the ads have driven out uh, the the organic content, and that's true on Amazon as well. I mean, if you look, you know, back when I first started talking about Amazon and collective intelligence and Web 2.0, 2.0 back in 2004 or so, uh, I used to show these searches, and the, and the Amazon, you know, default search was uh, basically uh, this combination of. What everybody thought was the best answer and now the default search is featured that is Amazon decided to show it to you and there's two things they decide to show you the things that their sponsors have paid them to show you and the things that they have decided to show you often their own products and uh, <laughs> I think it's 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 this illusion of choice that uh, antitrust regulators should be uh, honing in on in this algorithmic world. The people who control search actually have enormous control over what people are able to choose.
0: I think I think that's a a great point to leave it on Tim. That that matchmaking, that illusion of choice, giving them the ability to to charge and get those unearned rents, take advantage of the supply. Um, spot on. Thanks, thank you so much for joining us, Tim. Stay safe, my friend, and, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon.
1: All right. Thank you.